itself. You see this passage of scripture, as I said before, contains something of the reality that we experience. Now, the reality that there are those who would scoff and mock at the great promises that Jesus Christ has made to you. Uh, promises that he has made to his church as a whole, but promises that he has made to individuals as well. And you might remember that what we did in the last few weeks that we were together, we tried to follow out Peter's argument here and Peter's pastoral heart. You remember we said something about the pastoral heart of Peter. He talks about this second epistle, dearly beloved, that he, wrote, that he writes unto us. And this idea of Peter expressing himself by way of those terms, dearly beloved, exposed something of what we called his pastoral heart. We see that all these men that Jesus Christ chose as apostles became great pastors, uh, men who had great concern and great care for the flock of Jesus Christ. They understood and they recognized that the ones that they wrote to were the very ones that Jesus Christ died and bled for. And because of that, they were precious. And because of that, they were beloved. And so what we saw Peter doing again in this third chapter is he was, you remember, stirring up our pure minds. He was, again, giving that kind of, uh, not so much agitation in the negative sense, but that kind of spurring on, that idea that there are certain things to be embraced and certain things to be remembered. And the promised return of Jesus Christ is one of those things. And we said, again, he was doing this. He was stirring us up because, as I said before, it revealed something of his pastoral heart. But we also asked the question as to why did Peter feel as though he had to stir up our hearts? Why did he feel that that was the case? And what we saw at that point was essentially this, that sometimes we as the people of God are most negligent about those things which are most important. You see, your soul was the most important thing about you. The Lord Jesus Christ, you remember what he said there in Mark chapter 8, what shall profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Sadly, however... We are prone to neglect our soul. Sadly, however, we are prone to allow the, the things of life, the pressures of this life, to kind of overshadow the seriousness and the, and, the, and the gravity of what eternal life is all about. And therefore, Peter, as the, the tender under-shepherd that he is, he stirs up your pure minds and my pure mind. Remember how we talked about the importance of the mind in the life of the Christian that the Christian life isn't just some great gush of emotion. I love a gush of emotion, I must say. But the Christian life is more than that. The Christian life is that, that, that use of the mind, uh, that enlightenment of the soul, that, that use of the rational powers that God has given us, whereby we might worship him, whereby we might take all that God has given us by way of gifts and callings and submit them to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter is going along these lines. He's stirring up our pure minds. But do you remember what he drew our attention to? Remember what he says there in verse 2? He says that ye may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and by the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. He was drawing his readers back to the word of God. And all throughout the history of the church, this is what faithful preachers do. They bring their hearers to remind and to be mindful of the word of God, that word which is forever, forever settled in heaven. And so Peter says that the word of God will stir you up. The, Peter says that the word of God will keep the mind pure. And so Peter, as I said before, that great pastor, that great under shepherd, what is he doing? He is bringing us back to the word of God. Well, last week, that was what we did two weeks ago. Last week, you might remember that we took a look at the scoffers themselves. 
Everything that Peter is writing about in this second epistle, again, is, is writing in order, if you just notice, look at verse 17 of this third chapter, and you'll see the reason why Peter is writing. Peter says this, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. You remember, Peter earlier in chapter 1 said to, to make your calling and election sure. Peter's concern, as I said before, is about the well-keeping and the well-being of your soul. So what Peter does is he begins to remind us of these mockers. He exposes them for us. And what we did last week is we took a look at the scoffers themselves. We saw some things about uh, the nature of scoffing. Remember how we said that scoffing can be very effective? Uh, we, we made some quotes from men in history. I think it was, uh, I can't remember exactly who the quote was from. Was it Shakespeare? I almost hate to, to, to guess at that, to venture at that. But uh, one man said that, uh, that scoffing are like paper bullets. But how many bullets have those paper, how many men have those paper bullets failed? We, say, we said before, we said last week how, how effective mocking can be. The, the roll of an eyes, the, 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 the smirk that you might receive, again, sometimes can be very biting, can it not? Sometimes it can dissuade you from maybe being as, as forceful and as forthright in your witness for Christ. And these mockers, again, they have, they have the, 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 um, the ability to, to do that, to set us off course. And so what we did last week is we tried to, to set forth how we can avoid the effectiveness of the scoffers. And you might remember what we said. We said the first thing that we need to do is to remember that the scriptures prophesize of them. The scriptures tell us that in the last days, scoffers will come. So don't be surprised when you're mocked. Don't be surprised when you're scoffed at. It's exactly what the scripture says. In one sense, their presence confirms the truthfulness of the word of God. The other thing that we said about these scoffers, and we'll pick this up again here today, is that these scoffers, again, these men, they really don't have higher intellectual uh, interest in mind. These men really are just walking after their own lust. They are those individuals who, who really want to justify their own sinful behavior. And therefore, they will scoff and mock at anything that would run counter to that. Be aware of these things. Again, sometimes these men appear to be so insightful and, and, and so intelligent. But when it's all said and done, they're just trying to rationalize their sin. Fourthly, we, well, excuse me, thirdly, the, the, what we said, though, is that it's very important if we are to, going to avoid the effective bite of the mocker and the scoffer, we must be personally affected by the truths of the gospel. Well, this is vital, isn't it? That the gospel, remember how the illustration that we use? That the gospel, the, the, the knowledge of the gospel is not just to the reside in the head, it's to filter down into all that we are. So that it isn't just the religious element of my life that's taken care of. It's the reality that Jesus Christ and the fullness of his person is affecting everything about me. That nothing is the same since the Lord Jesus Christ has come to save. Nothing is the same since the Lord Jesus Christ has come to rule in the heart. Nothing is the same since the Spirit of God has taken up personal residence within the soul. Oh, you see, you must be personally affected by these truths that you profess. The truth that Jesus Christ died for you. We sang that song that thou, here, that, that last hymn we sung, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. It is amazing love. It is something that the world can't understand apart from the reality of the Spirit of God working in them. But oh, when the soul embraces that, or better yet, when the soul is possessed with that, oh, amazing love it truly is, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. 
So if you are going to be, again, uh, unaffected by the scoffers, if you are going to, to overcome their bite, you must be personally affected by the truths of the gospel message itself. And this leads us to the last point that we made, which is very closely related, and it's the reality that the best way to overcome the mocker and the scoffer is through a personal love for Jesus Christ. You remember the illustration that we closed up with last week? We said this, what mother was ever more inclined to pull away from her child when her child was mocked. No mother ever did that. As a matter of fact, those mockings probably drew out expressions of love in that mother that she may have never known. And so what I'm saying to you is this. Not only have an experience of the truths of the gospel, let the Spirit of God develop a true love for Jesus Christ within your soul. Because it's love that will overcome all the mocking of the scoffers. It's love that will, that will cement the heart to Jesus Christ. And so again, these mockers and how to avoid their biting sting. Well, what I want to do today is I want to continue, in, continue on in the passages that we're looking at. We're going to look particularly today at verses 3 uh, through 7. Uh, again, some of these things we, we considered last week, but our focus will be on verses uh, 3 through 7. And what we're going to see uh, in this passage of Scripture, in these verses, is that we're going to see uh, four points. We're going to outline the passage in four points. Number one, we're going to see something we've already noted, that mockers are especially prevalent in the last days. Uh, we'll kind of give a little bit of thought as to what the scriptures mean when they talk about the last days. We'll, we'll just, uh, again, take a look at that uh, relatively shortly. The second thing we're going to see, again, this is something else we already touched on, but we're going to develop it a little further. We're going to see that mockers are motivated by their own sinful lust. Again, this is one of the ways in which you can kind of uh, evaluate these men for who and what they are. Uh, they're not coming with the higher interest of, of intellectual integrity. And they're coming with their scoffing and mocking just really in order to rationalize their own, uh, their own sin. And we'll take a look at that. The third thing that we're going to see is that these scoffers and mockers are guilty of what we would have to call a culpable ignorance. Peter says they're willingly ignorant. Yeah, they make, they're making a choice. They're making a, a selective a choice of, of what they choose to, to look at and uh, what they choose to, to consider. And again, this makes them culpable in their ignorance. It's not as though their ignorance is, is, is upon them because uh, they just didn't know certain things. But what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture is that they choose not to know certain things. It is a, a culpable uh, ignorance. And then the, the last thing that we're going to see is that, the, the, is that these mockers and scoffers, uh, in spite of all their scoffing, in spite of all their mocking, uh, these scoffers, they face a day of judgment and perdition. And this leads me to what I would call the, the doctrine of our text or the principle that uh, it basically encapsulates uh, uh, these verses in the doctrine is this. Uh, the scoffer, in spite of all of his perceived wit and biting ridicule the things whole, of, th of all things holy, will one day stand before a holy God who will judge the ungodly. Let me read that to you again. The scoffer, in spite of all of his perceived wit and biting ridicule of all things holy, will one day stand before a holy God who will judge the ungodly. You see, their scoffing will not do away with reality that God will judge the wicked. Well, let's take a look then at each of these points. And the first thing that I want you to see is that mockers are especially prevalent in the last days. This is exactly what Peter tells us, is it not? Again, notice what he says in verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. 
Now, the expression the last days is something that we find repeatedly in the scripture, really. We find it a number of times. And one of the things that we need to understand about the expression the last days is essentially this. That the last days, if we can put it this way, in a formal way, refers to that period of time between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his coming. There is a sense in which it is as broad as that. And we are in those last days. It's an exciting thing to live in these last days. I really think, and I think I've mentioned this before in this pulpit, I think that if we were to have a conversation with with any of the Old Testament saints, they would say to us, you mean you live in that day where Christ the Messiah has been manifested? You mean you live in that day where the Spirit of God has been prophesied to give new hearts and to fill the individuals? You live in that day? We would say, yes, we do. And so again, there's a sense in which there's an excitement about living in these last days. But I also think that while the the primary emphasis in the passage of Scripture is on, again, that period of time in the last days, that period of time between the resurrection and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, I also do think that we should not be um, that we should not be uh, ignorant of the fact that uh, the last days also kind of comes to a point at those times that we would call the last final days before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is a particular intensity in time. And this is, I think, what Peter's talking about. I think when he says scoffers will come in the last days, he's he's talking about throughout the history of the church, there have always been scoffers. But I think that there is a particular emphasis in the last days that scoffers and mockers shall have a particular emphasis and a particular success in their work. I was reading Matthew Henry's uh, uh, commentary on this, and, and I was kind of surprised to see how that he said that, I forget exactly the way that he said it, but that there would be, a, 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 again, an increase in the effectiveness in scoffers as time went on. And part of that is because of the time between the, uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the period in between his coming. And so, again, that adds fuel uh, to the mockers. But as we said before, this idea that the scoffers, again, are especially prevalent in the last days. Now, again, the idea that the last days occur uh, during that time between the resurrection and the ascension, we see this again in the, in the, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that God hath in these last days spoken unto us, again, uh, through his word, he hath in these last, excuse me, spoken unto us through his son. He has spoken in these last days, a reference to that time in which we live. But as I said before, we also know that the last days will be marked by their sinful kind of increase. I think of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, I think it's in Luke 18, he says, but when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? You see, we live in those days where faith is challenged. We live in those days where we can easily understand those words of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Faith will be so challenged. Faith will be so opposed. Faith will be so spoken against. Faith will be so mocked. Will any have the courage to stand for Christ in a day like that? And so again, this idea of the last days, we should not ignore that there is kind of a peak to to that idea of the last days. This is why Paul refers to them as perilous times. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Know ye that also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And what do we see happening there? Men shall be lovers of themselves. Self will be prioritized over the things of God. And that's a challenge that you and I face every day, is it not? 
whether we will glorify God in the moment or whether we will gratify self in the moment. This is the great battle, we might say, of, of, of living out the Christian life. And I would encourage you and I would call you as your pastor. And I would ask you to call me as, as your pastor to live in that way, to live for the glory of God in the moment that God has given to us. You see, stewardship of time, not only by way of the large patterns of time, but stewardship of time even in the moment. Oh, is this moment being lived for the glory of God? Hear me, for the glory of God. And so again, the last days, again, are marked by their perilous times. The last days are marked by scoffers. The last days are marked by, marked by that question, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith in the earth? Oh, these last days. You see, this is why I gave you last week those, those means by which you can uh, kind of uh, stave off some of the biting criticism or some of the biting mocking of the scoffers. Because when it's all said and done, Satan is intending to do one thing, and that is to shake your soul off of faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't care how he does it. He can use hardship. He may use prosperity. He can use mocking. He may use, he, he may use a, a, the loss of faith. He may use all kinds of things. At the end of the day, he is just trying to shake you off of faith in Jesus Christ. And here is Peter, and what is he doing? He's stirring up your pure mind. Here is Peter, what is he doing? He's calling you back to the word of God. And so these things, again, be all necessary because of the mockers that come in these last days. Well, the second thing that Peter brings to our attention is the fact that these, these mockers, sometimes they seem so intelligent, don't they? So, so witty, so quick-minded. Uh, these mockers, however, really are only rationalizing their own sin. This is what Peter says. Did you, did you see what he says there again in, in verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. This is really what it's all about for them. And as I said before, this is the challenge because they are reflecting the point that I just kind of related to you, which is essentially this. Will I live for God's glory or for my own gratification? These men are walking according to their own lust. They've made the decision. If it comes down between a choice between walking for the glory of God and walking for my own gratification, well, they're saying, I made that decision long ago. And they're walking according to their own lust, uh, Peter says. And we see this. We see this in other places. Jude says the same thing. In, in, in Jude uh, verses 16 and 18, uh, he speaks about these, false, uh, about these apostates, these false teachers, uh, these men who, who, who afflict the church. He says these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust. Verse 18, Jude says this, how that, we told, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. You see, this is really, in one sense, we can put, can I, can I say it this way? I don't mean to throw a curveball at you here, but can I say it this way? Let's put it in the terms of, 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 of a current of, of political thinking. Here is the individual liberated. Here is, the, here is the individual freed from all restrictions, walking according to their own desires, walking according to, to what they choose to, 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 to do and what they think is right. But the Christian says no. The Christian says, by, by the grace of God, I've, 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 I've submitted my whole body, mind, and soul to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. And I found in Jesus Christ, oh, what a wonderful Savior. We talk about these shepherds. Oh, what a wonderful shepherd Jesus Christ is. There's, there's one, this, this, this Savior who has loved me in such a way. This one who takes me to himself. This one who gives me all of that which, which I need and keeps from me all those things that are harmful. 
You see, again, the Christian has come to this crossroads and he said, no, no, not my own sinful lust. God, save me from my own sinful lust. And may I live to the glory of God. And so again, this is, the, this is the issue that we see here. These men are motivated by their own sinful lust. And again, this is really what sin is all about, isn't it? Jude bring, excuse me, James brings this out. He talks about how these temptations, which arise from our own sinful lust, really lead to sin. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. You, you, most of you probably know the passage. Uh, but every man, when he is tempted, is drawn away. Are you ready by this? Is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, the scoffer won't tell you this, but James will. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. You see, and, and then what will the scoffer say? Oh, you see, again, when, when, when these desires arise in your heart, what does it bring? It brings freedom, they'll tell you. And all these people who want to keep you from just having your own expression uh, to be all that you can be. Yeah, to be all that you can be in sin. And then, the, and then the parish and how, they won't tell you these things. Oh, hell, okay, here we go. Yeah, ha, 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 snicker, snicker, snicker. And you know, sometimes that affects us. Again, as I said before, uh, people of prominence, uh, uh, people of intelligence, uh, people of stature, they look down at things such as this. Oh, but here's the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Peter, again, saying these things, making these things known to us. You see, you must understand that these men really are motivated by their own sinful lust. Brothers and sisters, what are you and I motivated by? Are we motivated by the glory of God? You see, sometimes we can be motivated by desires, lust, that are not so graphically sinful. We can be motivated and, 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 and moved by, by lust that maybe have a, an air of respectability about, the, about them. But at the end of the day, is it what God is calling us to? Is it at the end of the day, is it in keeping with his word? At the end of the day, in that moment, am I being obedient to Christ or am I being obedient to my own refined desires? Not my, not, you know, not, 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 my, not, my, not my sins in the gutter desires. You see, I've, I've, I've become a little more respectable than that. Peter's saying these men, no matter what type of sinful desires they're walking according to, that's what they're walking according to, their own sinful desires. So may God keep us from these things. Well, what are they mocking? They're not only mocking the things of, of God in general. They're mocking something very specific, but something very precious to the church of Jesus Christ. What they are mocking is that they are mocking that promised return of Jesus Christ. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see, again, what they say? <clears throat> in one sense, we can say that they walk in a certain way. They walk according to their own sinful lust. And they talk in a sinful way. They talk by way of mocking. And how do they mock? Well, they say, well, where is the promise of his coming? So what I want you to see is that their mocking really brings its focus and its attention on that promise of Jesus Christ to return for his own. And this is something that I hope is very precious to you when I talk about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his own. You see, what I want you to realize is that we can look at uh, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in two ways, in at least two ways. We can look at it doctrinally, and we should, because there is really no understanding about the full orb revelation of God apart from that reality of the return of Jesus Christ in glory. Our Lord was very clear in this. 
Just two passages to, to bring this out. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he shall reward every man according to his works. The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. You see, here it is, a declaration. Didactically, Jesus Christ is setting it forth. Uh, by way of declaration, he's saying that, the, that he shall return in the glory of his Father. And every true Christian longs to see that. You know, it's an amazing thing sometimes to see the, the pride that uh, in a, the, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll stay with the word, the, the pride uh, that, that, that a young boy has in his father or maybe uh, something of a, of a child and, and seeing the success of, of, of a parent. There's, there's, there's something that wells up in that little child. It's the same thing vice versa, right? When, when, when children do well and we think as parents, oh, you know, just... So grateful, so happy uh, that this has happened. Well, you see, stop and think of what it will be for you to see Jesus Christ return in the glory of his Father. No longer in, the, in, his, in, in his state of humility. No longer mocked at. No longer spit upon. No longer hit in the head with a, with, a, with, a, with a cover over his face. No longer having his beard plucked out. But now he comes in the glory of his Father. And I think the church longs to see that. I think the church desires to see that. I think the church is longing for that day to see Jesus Christ returning in his glory. Amen. Another passage of scripture, uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. Again, the same, along the same lines. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven when he, when he shall, uh, excuse me, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Why will, they, why will the tribes of the earth mourn? This is a reference to those who have not submitted themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to those who are living according to their own lust. Oh, it'll be a dreadful day. And what the mockers do is rather than dealing with the full weight of all of that kind of emotional uh, and spiritual and, 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 and true uh, weight of burden, they just rationalize it away. And oh, by the way, with a joke. And they make you laugh at it. It's an amazing thing how, how humor really can, can really cut the edge of something. That which we hold maybe dearest to us or, or have uh, the most uh, uh, the, the sense of the sacred about. When, when individuals are able to, to, to make us laugh at it or, 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 ca or, or cause a mocking of it, it just kind of lessens the seriousness of it. But these individuals, again, they will see the Son of Man coming. Oh, and they will, they will wail and they will, woan, uh, the, uh, they will be in woe on that day. They will mourn on that day. So there is the doctrinal element of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I have to say that there's also a personal element of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ that you do well to, take, to, to take a, uh, give attention to. And this is what Peter is saying. Did you, did you notice what the words of the mockers are? And you have to understand that the words of the mockers, I have to admit, it's a little difficult to, to truly place these mockers. Are they outside of the church mocking those on the inside? Are they inside of the church mocking those who hold to what we would call sound orthodox theology? It's kind of interesting. It's an interesting question to take up, and I'm sure as we go on, we'll, we'll discuss this more and more. But what I want you to see is notice what the mockers are saying, and notice in what way it's put forth. And they say, listen to this, where is the promise of his coming? 
Do you know that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is not merely a fact of Christian Orthodox doctrine? It is a personal promise that Jesus Christ makes to his own. He's coming for you. This is a promise. The promise of his coming. That's what Jesus spoke about in John 14. Verse 3. And I go and prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Christ wants to be with his church. He wants his church to be with him. That where I am there, ye may be also. It's a promise he makes to you. Yes, it's a formal doctrine. And we have to understand it. We have to develop it. We have to trace it out in all of its different roots. And sometimes it's very difficult to, to put the, the doctrine of eschatology of the return of Christ all together in a way that's a, uh, you know, in, in a way that we can fit everything together. But it's there as a promise as well. And I want you to see it that way. I want you to see and understand that, that when these men come and mock, they are mocking a personal promise that Jesus Christ made to you. And that's why these men are offensive. And that's why these men hurt. That's why these, that's why these, these, these men, again, we need, to avoid, we need to know how to avoid the, 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 the sting of their bite. And so here we have a doctrine, but we have a promise as well. Well, these men, again, in their mocking, not only, as I said before, not only do we see them, um, uh, they're mocking because, uh, because they are motivated by their, by their own sinful lust. Uh, the next thing that we see here is that these mockers engage in what we've described as a culpable ignorance, a culpable ignorance. What is it to be culpably ignorant? Well, to be culpable is to be worthy of blame. Uh, it means that there is no uh, sense of... Uh, uh, of um, of, of, uh, of, uh, of ignorance, not the right word to use right now. There's no sense of a lack of knowledge because of an inability to attain knowledge. That's not what's being spoken of here. You know, there's a sense in which, you know, you can't be faulted for something that you don't know. But you can be faulted for the things that you choose not to know when they're made, when they're made clear to you. And the scoffers have this. And even if they should turn away from the word of God, they have the, the, the law of God written on the heart. They know that they live in a moral universe. They know that there is a right and wrong. They know that there is accountability. They see it on every hand. And that's what makes their ignorance. Remember what Peter says here? For this they are willfully ignorant. That's what makes their ignorance culpable. It's an interesting thing to, to consider uh, ignorance along these lines, how it can be uh, culpable or, or how it can be relatively innocent. And let me give you just uh, uh, some, uh, some examples of how ignorance can be relatively uh, ignorance. Uh, again, there could be inadequate uh, information. And again, if you were informed uh, wrongly or if there was uh, information kept from you, that would be one thing that would lessen uh, any kind of culpability. And there may also be honest doubt. We don't, we don't deny this. We know that sometimes individuals just have honest doubt. We have to be careful because we know that oftentimes in the face of doubt, what individuals are trying to do is they're trying to just make a, a, a reserve for their own sin. But sometimes these things do happen. There, there can be uh, this honest doubt. But when ignorance resides not so much by way of a lack of opportunity, but when ignorance stems from something within the will, it's different. It's different. It's blameworthy at that point. When ignorance, again, is because we are choosing to protect our own passions, again, it's much different. 
And then when ignorance, again, comes about by way of a willful rejection of revealed truth, it is especially culpable at that time. And this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The picture is they keep the truth down. The picture is they don't want the truth to get out. And so again, this, this ignorance here is a, is a culpable ignorance. It's, it's a willful ignorance. And we see examples of this in the scripture. We see examples in the scripture of, of, of willful uh, disobedience and of, and, of, and of willful ignorance. Listen to these passages of scripture. Moses is talking to the people of Israel early in the chapter of Deuteronomy. And he, and he says this. He says, So I spake unto you, and ye would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. I spake unto you, Moses said. I preached the word of God unto you, but you wouldn't hear. And so again, what we're seeing is this willful disobedience. They may be saying to Moses, I understand what, what you're saying, what God says, but we will have none of it. Another example of this is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And again, uh, God through Moses is comparing the judgment that God brought on the existing nations with the judgment that's going to come on the people of Israel because of, again, their willful disobedience. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, as the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so ye shall perish. Because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. What, what does God call us back to over and over again? It's the word of God. The word of God, whether given audibly there in the Old Testament, the word of God that we, or the word of God that we have in our hands here. When you or I have this resolve to not do what the word of God says, we do no good to our souls. And so again, there's this willful disobedience. There's, there's, there's a willful disbelief as well. Luke chapter 22, verse, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 22, verse 67. The question is asked, art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, if I tell you, ye will not believe. There are some men who have such opposition in their hearts. Even if Christ would say to them, I am the Christ, they still would not believe. We see the same thing in, in John chapter 5, verse 40. And ye will not come to me that ye may have life, Jesus says. So you see, this matter of the will is, oh, it's vital, isn't it? Oh, that God would, break, that God would grant to us a will that is broken under the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That God would grant to us a will that is restored through the blood and through the work of the Spirit of God within us. Oh, how we need our wills submitted to the Holy Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so again, this, this whole idea of, uh, of being culpably uh, ignorant. Well, their, their culpability is, is, is also uh, extended, we might say, because what it is doing, what, what they are doing is they are being very selective, and we might even say prejudicial, in their estimation or evaluation of the facts. They're being prejudicial, and they're being selective. Notice again what Peter says here in verse 5. For, they are, for this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. Let me just stop right there. You see, the scoffer is prejudiced against this idea of being informed by the word of God. You know, this is one of the, we might say that one of the great uh, points of tension uh, between the, the time of the Reformation and the time of the Enlightenment. 
You know, where does the ability for truth to be understood reside? Uh, does it reside in the word of God or is it all bound up in the enlightened mind of man? And you've heard me emphasize the importance of the mind. I will never talk anything by way of the, uh, by way of the, uh, the mind uh, not being used for the glory of God, but that the mind be subjected to the lordship of Christ. This is the crux. This is the key. And so again, these men are prejudicial in their evaluation of the evidence. The word of God says these things. Well, so what if the word of God says it, the, the mocker says? And as a matter of fact, they'll make a joke at it at your expense. And so again, these men are, are prejudicial uh, in their uh, knowledge, but they're also they're selective. And that's why Peter says, for this they are willingly ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. And this is a reference to Genesis. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And what I want you to see is this. And I love this point. Peter, in engaging the scoffers, doesn't engage the scoffers on their own terms, we may say. Peter engages the scoffers from the perspective of the word of God. He goes back to the scripture. You see, for the people of God, this is what it's all about. It's the word of God. And so when these scoffers are to be evaluated, they are to be understood, again, walking according to their, to their own sinful desires, but they're also to be understood from the perspective of the word of God. They want to sit in judgment of the word, but the word sits in judgment of them. And Peter says they're willfully ignorant of this thing. They know what the scriptures teach, but because of their prejudiced uh, approach uh, to, to the information that God gives in his word, they discount it. And so again, Peter exposing these individuals. Well, this idea, and notice what Peter says here again in verse 5, for, by this, for this they are will, uh, willingly ignorant of, listen to this, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. You probably don't realize how many times Scripture speaks about the word of God as that creative agent in the created order, that everything comes into existence by the word of God. You know, it's kind of interesting from the perspective of New Testament revelation and New Testament theology, from the perspective of the incarnation and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, we have insight into the very being of God by way of his triune nature. And when we, when we, when we have that, it sheds light on the rest of the scripture, doesn't it? So that when we hear about the word of God as the creative agent uh, in all of creation, we hear Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and following in a way that maybe we've not heard it before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and God said, there's his word, there's the triune God. God was there in the fullness of his being. And I'm saying to you again, apart from New Testament revelation, we would, we would understand the passage to a certain degree, Bro, do you understand that by way of incarnation and by way of the descent of the Holy Spirit, you and I are given insight into the very nature of God. And so again, by the word of the Lord, Psalm 33 verse 6 says this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them, and the breath of all of his, and by the breath of his mouth. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says this, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do, which do appear. And so what the, what the writer is saying is, underneath the, underneath the material structure of the visible universe is the immaterial reality of the power of God. And scientists are looking for this, 
this, this, this power behind the material uh, universe? Are they not? They're trying to understand what is it that, that brought everything into existence? Is matter eternal? And they look and they see evidence. Well, it really can't be eternal because we see a beginning point for it. So what was it that caused it? And many times, because of their, because of their philosophical presuppositions, they are, as I said before, prejudicially setting aside what the Word of God has to say. And they are looking at the information in a very selective way. And scoffers are picking up on this. And they're using, again, all of their witty insight to make you feel like, yeah, yeah, that, that is what I believe. You see, the scoffers are able to make you think that way, aren't they? And so again, Peter evaluates these men in light of the word of God. You know, they forget uh, that basic, in one sense, well, you know, just a, a basic a point of knowledge. We, we, even the most simple understand that from nothing, nothing comes. There has to be something or better someone to explain what we have here. And so, as we said, these men are prejudicial and they are selective in their, uh, in their examination of the, fa- of the facts. And again, this is why, uh, not, only so that not only are they prejudicial and selective in their understanding of the facts, which causes them, again, to call into question uh, the matters of creation, but causes them to overlook the reality of the flood. Look what we see here in, in, in uh, verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. It's kind of interesting that when you, when you look at uh, verses 5 and 6, you see the world in water and water above. And so you have in the very created order the means whereby God brought judgment upon the world at that time, the judgment of water and the coming judgment, the judgment of fire. Well, you see, this is really what these mockers are trying to avoid. The fact that there is a coming day of judgment. That's why they scoff. And notice again what Peter says here in verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, listen to this, which are now by the same word. Now we have the word of God not only as the creative force, not only the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, all things were made by him, John 1, 3. He also is that force by which all things cohere or hold together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. But again, notice as we see here that by the same word, but the heavens and the earth, which are now kept by the same word, are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You see, all their scoffing does not in any way negate the reality that there's coming a day of judgment and perdition for ungodly men. Yes, a day of judgment, a day that God has appointed, a day of perdition for the ungodly. You see, the emphasis here is on the fact that these men are going to, again, reap the fruit of all their scoffing. Their scoffing and their mocking will come back to them on that day of judgment. And there will no longer be an occasion for joke. It will no longer be an occasion for snickering. It will be an occasion of mourning and woe. We can't get away from these things. And I want you to see and I want you to understand that There is an emphasis here. This whole idea about the reality of a coming judgment. Why do we talk about this? Are we just trying to scare people? No. This is the emphasis of the word of God. God is the holy God who will reward the righteous and judge the wicked. This is what we see. That there is coming a time when the righteous again will be in the presence of God. And the wicked will be cast away from the presence of God. A time of judgment and a time of reward for the people of God. 
This is why Paul says in, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 10, he says this, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and flaming, and flaming fire taking vengeance. You see flaming fire. There's, there's, there's the, the means by which God is going to bring uh, this next uh, uh, phase of judgment into the world. And flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. There's that perdition. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired Remember I told you how that the return of Jesus Christ and the glory of his Father is something that you long for? It would be a day of great admiration. Jesus Christ coming in the glory of his Father with all of his angels. It will be a glory day for the church. It will be a glory day for you. <clears throat> and again, he goes on to say, and to be admired in all of them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. How did all this become yours? You believe the testimony of God from Scripture and through preaching. And because of that, now, again, there is no perdition awaiting you, but there is the joining in and the participation in that glorious day when you and I will admire the glorious Lord Jesus Christ as he comes with, from the glory of his Father with all of his holy angels. What a day that will be. And I'm telling you right now, that point of, if I can put it that way, that this way, that point of spiritual and religious zeal and excitement is the very thing that the mockers in their biting way roll their eyes out, look askance, and make a joke at. But all their joking and all their mocking will not do away from this with this passage of scripture. So you may think, well, let, well, let them get whatever they have coming to them. Let them mock and let them get whatever they have coming to them. But that's not what Peter says, is it? Peter says, but remember this, beloved. One day is with the Lord is a thousand days. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, not even the scoffers, but that all should come to repentance. You see, that's, that tempers us now, doesn't it? Yes, we're offended by these things. Yes, we're hurt, we're stung. We, 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 we realize that. Yes, it's a day of admiration. And yes, again, we're, we're put off by all this, but, but no. How can I hate you when Christ calls me to to proclaim he's not willing that you perish. As a matter of fact, the, the butt of your joke, where is his coming, is all designed for your salvation. So my friends, I ask you, I think I know most of you here, even those of you who are visiting, I've seen a time or two, but I ask you, how is your heart with Jesus Christ today? You see, are you being affected wrongly by the scoffers and the mockers? Are they chipping away slowly but surely at your faith that you profess in Christ? You remember what I said last week? Don't let a mocker laugh you out of heaven. Don't let a scoffer tell a joke and cause you to leave off the glory of God. You follow this one who is promised. Promised, yes, not only by way of a doctrinal construct, but made a promise to you that where I am, there ye may be also. I will come again and receive you unto myself. So in light of this, by way of our applications now, what do we do? Well, first of all, I would say this. Embrace the Savior. Embrace Him. Turn from your sins. Evaluate yourself. Are you being led more by your own desires or are you being led by, by the Word and by the glory of God? But also, 
specifically now three points of application. Number one, as I said before, remember that the presence of scoffers and mockers in our day is, is one of the proofs of the truthfulness of the word of God. Luke 18, verse 8, I tell you, Jesus says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Oh, there will be a time of the thinning out. And the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, again, asking this question. The implied answer is that there, there will be. But again, it's put in such a way as to cause us to say, is it going to be that serious? Yes, it will. So again, understand that the presence of the mockers confirm the word of God. Secondly, understand this, that to have the mind stirred up concerning God's judgment upon sin and to have the mind kept pure is the aim of all biblical preaching and teaching. And one of the ways in which Peter calls us to make our calling and election sure. You see, remember verse 1, chapter 1, verse 10? If you do these things, you shall, you shall never find, but you shall make your calling and election sure. That's what he wants you to do. Verse 17 of the same passage of scripture, again, where he says, be not carried away with the error of the wicked. Peter is the pastor. Peter is concerned for your souls. He doesn't want you again swept away with all these jokes and all these chuckles. He wants you to stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, what I would say is this. First, again, remember the day of scoffers is our day. Secondly, have your mind stirred up. Have your mind kept pure by the word of God. But thirdly, let me say this. Keep watch over your soul. It is your great interest in this present age. Your great interest is not what you're going to do tomorrow for work. Your great interest is not what your retirement is going to be. Your great interest is not what the next significant event in human history is going to be. These things, I'm not saying they're not important, but your great interest is the well-being and the keeping of your soul. That's why Peter says, ye therefore beloved. There's that word again. He loves the people of Christ. Ye therefore beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest ye also being led astray with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. Let us pray.